don't give it like a the podcast platform of the Phenomenalist by Leopold Lambert. Today, the geopolitics of maritime transportation in the Middle East with Lale Kalizi. Hello everyone, today my guest is uh, Lale Khalili, who is a professor of Middle East politics at uh, SOAS, University of London, and the author of a few books. Uh, she edited uh, Pol Policing and Prisons in the Middle East and authored uh, a first book called Heroes and Martyrs of Palestine, and a second called Time in the Shadows, Confinement in Counterinsurgencies. Counter uh, hello Lale. Hello. Uh, as much as those... Uh, books uh, definitely trigger a lot of uh, incredibly interesting echoes. Uh, we will talk about something else today, which is more uh, related to your, to your current research and that we, we might call the, um, maybe the, the capitalist logistics of war, but I don't know if that's, that's exactly the way you would put it yourself, but, uh, but I don't know, I guess that's... Or warlike logistics of capitalism. Yeah, well, there you go. Yeah. <laughs> and so maybe one day we'll, we will manage to, to talk about those uh, other fascinating works. Um, and so, so we will mostly uh, choose as a spine of this conversation this uh, recent trip you've been taking on a, on a container ship between Malta and... Uh, and uh, and the uh, Arab, um, United Arab uh, Emirates, um, and uh, but maybe bef to, to maybe introduce this uh, this work of yours, and I think that will even more uh, put it in a relation with this uh, with this work, uh, this past work I, I just uh, referred to. Um, could you tell us a little bit about how? Um, how the, the sort of infrastructure, logist, civil logistics have been always intertwined with with, uh, with, uh, with the logistics of wars themselves, and I think uh, in in this uh, in this lecture that I will uh, that you did into us uh, in uh, in last March, you've been talking a little bit about that in relation to railways in uh, in nineteenth century Europe, but uh, I guess there's, uh, there's many other examples as well. Um, the Franco-Prussian War is a really interesting one. Um, there's a history of military logistics, one of the um, one of the very few books that actually talks about this by Martin Vankerveld, and he um, speaks, uh, he tells a very interesting story of how the network of railroads in France and Germany, which uh, to which we've become, whose usage we've become very accustomed to taking for granted, um, are actually they have uh, actually histories that are completely and totally embedded in wars. And that particularly is uh, was the case with the Franco-Prussian Wars of the 19th century because after Napoleon came to power, Napoleon was one of the first um, military strategists who decided to use um, logistical materiel coming from behind the lines rather than being requisitioned uh, in situ or looted essentially in situ from wherever place that was that the militaries marched into and um, his strategic decision to in fact use railways to bring in material food uh, medicines medical equipment military equipment um, 
from behind the lines, changed the face of war fighting. I mean, this is, he's often thought of as being an amazing tactic, tactician and an amazing strategist, but part of it was also the ways in which he completely transformed the face of the operational side of warfare, which people often don't talk about, but it is, but it was crucial to, 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 to his military successes until, of course, he no longer was successful. But um, but the continuing, the, the subsequent Franco-Prussian wars, which went on intermittently and episodically all the way through the 19th century, uh, drew on these sets of experiences on, on building these railroads that were to deliver material to fighting armies across uh, Western Europe. And it was... Those railways, um, of course, laying down railways is an incredibly labor-intensive um, uh, process, and it is, and it requires buy-in from communities that live alongside it, or actually coercion of communities that live alongside it, requisition of vast amounts of land, of huge amounts of labor going into laying down rails. It is an extremely cumbersome, difficult, expensive, and politically. Um, dangerous in some senses and difficult uh, proposition and it can really that that kind of an undertaking uh, to the extent that it was was undertaken in a, at a time of war and so the rails that we use today have their origins in many of those tracks that were laid during the Franco-Prussian War and I think that that was reading that by Vancouver was always really interesting to me because it seemed to me that that kind of thinking uh, which is to develop particular forms of infrastructure which can very easily be converted from civilian use into military use has been crucial to the to the policy making of states when they think about building infrastructures particularly transport infrastructures roads railroads ports um, Certainly, the U.S. military has uh, constant planning for what they call strategic transport assets, which uh, sets out policies and regulations for, for example, requisitioning or contracting civilian airlines uh, for their various works, um, including spying, actually. Mm -hmm. So not only transport of material and soldiers, but also requisitioning civilian airlines, American Airlines or United Airlines or whatever, for, for, for the work of the military. Um, roads are similarly considered to be dual-use um, uh, types of infrastructures. And in fact, there's a lot of really interesting research being done right now about how the road-building projects in Afghanistan, which are ostensibly supposed to be humanitarian projects, are in fact very easily convertible into uh, kinds of military infrastructures. Mm -hmm. And they're necessary, in fact, for military transport in a country which, because of its um, variable and the mountainous terrain, quite difficult to get to by ground troops. And so this this particular kind of a traffic between military and civilian transport infrastructures has been of great interest to me. Uh, but I'm now focusing mostly on the maritime side of this. Mm. Um, and the maritime side is not always as clear because um, although when one reads about the U.S., uh, various U.S. wars in the Gulf area. One reads about how the U.S. Uh, made enormous uh, sort of uh, contracts with commercial uh, maritime shipping companies, with U.S. merchant marine, but also with foreign shipping companies to transport its material. Um, it becomes very clear that that is an ongoing project. Uh, when you look at the way that the U.S. is moving out its uh, material as it slowly, slowly draws down from Afghanistan, for example, um, the, uh, 
the the way that it works is mater- material is moved from Afghanistan via planes to an airstrip in Jabal Ali port in Dubai, uh, put on ships and shipped home from Jabal Ali. So the Jabal Ali port area in Dubai acts as this kind of, well, it's the eighth largest container port in the Middle East. It's probably one of the largest ports, period, in the Middle East. Um, but it also acts as this kind of a military storage facility and transport facility for the U.S. military. So this this is part of what I'm really, really interested in in this project. Mm-hmm. And I guess we'll, we'll maybe organize this conversation uh, geographically. Uh, for once, that's not often I get, I get to do that. But yes. since... Since we can uh, ax, uh, take for access your your trip uh, that you will tell us about, uh, we can uh, we can almost go chronologically in this trip and uh, and maybe uh, there are three points that I'm particularly interested in in, uh, in what I, I like to call the, the politics of narrowness in uh, which would be the the Suez Canal, the the Gulf of Aden, and the Strait of Hormuz, yes. which are like three very key points in those um, in this infrastructure that you're uh, describing. But maybe to go back to the very uh, 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 almost uh, biographical aspect of, of it, could you could you tell us a little bit about how you end up climbing on a boat on a, on a, on a container ships with like uh, Moby Dick and uh, and the capital Das Capital and Fernand Braudel's history of the yeah. Mediterranean? <laughs> um, well, when I started doing this project. Uh, there were lots of ways that you could research it. Um, and I have chosen all these different ways to research it. I'm, I've been blessed with a nice research grant, which gives me a lot of time to do research on the project. And so I do have time to incorporate lots of different research methods, including archival work in business archives, as well as national archives of the UK and the US and any others that I can get into, uh, interviews and various other kinds of things. And I have found it... Um, of varying difficulty being able to get into ports, uh, big container ports, to do port visits. Some ports are much more welcoming than others. Um, and I found Jabal Ali, which is, again, very interesting to me because of because of the fact that in many ways it fits within the larger puzzle of my project. Why is it that Dubai that doesn't have any oil, that has a very small hinterland population, ends up having the largest transshipment port uh, and the largest container port in the Middle East? Um, I've been wanting to get into Jabal Ali and I haven't been able to. There's a very complex security process, which pretty much makes it impossible um, unless you are doing business rather than research to get into the port. Um, so, so that was one of the attractions of actually taking container ship port, which dropped you off at Jabal Ali, which is what my ship did. Um, but part of it is also, I, uh, for my undergraduate work, I was trained as an engineer and I think I have always had this kind of a unhealthy love of the massive technological kind of structures, um, fascination with enormous buildings, fascination with bridges, fascination with ports, fascinations with container ships. And this this fascination um, manifested itself, for example, in being in Istanbul, which is one of the most beautiful cities in the world, if not the most beautiful, hands down. And finding myself, rather than looking, sitting on a balcony at a at a rooftop bar, um, looking over the the the, the sea, and instead of looking back over my shoulder to the beautiful mosques and the incredibly beautiful landscape of Istanbul, being actually looking to the sea, uh, and completely fascinated by the uh, container ships waiting to cross through the um, through the Bosporus, and so that fascination 
when I've discovered that I can actually take a container ship trip, it ended up I took it. I took that chance and it was it was probably the best research experience of my life i'm hoping to repeat it again next year but uh but it was amazing uh, to get on a container ship in uh, malta to go through the suez canal to go through uh babel mandab um and the indian ocean and and then through the persian gulf uh, sorry through the uh, hormuz strait to persian gulf so yes it's absolutely fascinating mm-hmm. and so uh you've been uh, you've been um Uh, writing before, while, and after the, after this trip on this platform, uh, the 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 gaming. Yes, right? I I set yeah. up a blog to allow me to think through what sorts of things I was interested mm-hmm. in, and to keep a record of it. Um, and uh, and so it's it's very interesting because it's there's so many aspects to it, right? Like there's obviously the very uh, 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 rigorous research, uh, very much hundred uh, percent link with uh, with your research and everything. But you also describe the 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 birthday of uh, one of the one of the crew member was like doing was very cheap karaoke or something like that. Yeah. And uh, the sort of uh, at some point even um, a sort of Marxist reading of the, or Mar- Marxian I should say reading of the the ship as a factory as well, which uh, I thought was a uh, was particularly interesting in how you were maybe you can tell us more about that how the ship is very much part of the of the. Um, Added value uh, production of of within within it's not just transportation it's actually mm. uh, adds value to this uh, to the to the goods it's it's carrying so many 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 aspects like that of your of your trip like like a li- I, I suppose a little bit like they came to you right yeah well, I mean uh, part of it was uh, doing straight up ethnography mm. uh, so uh, so being there when the crew members were doing karaoke singing is, is ethnographic, but it also says something about the leisure practices on board the ship. It says something about the way that there are now nationally distinct uh, divisions between officers on these container ships who tend to be European and crew members who tend to be from the global south. And that uh, permits, for example, dual wage systems. So there's lots of things in there that... that on the first glance seem like the everyday furniture of a trip but end up actually having very significant kinds of political and political economic um, reverberations. The question of, um, of course, transport being um, part of the value added is one that goes back to Marx. Marx both in in Grundrisse and in Capital Volume 2, which I took with me, the latter of which I took with me, (laughs) on board, um, talks about how this kind of transportation Um, actually uh, adds to the value of a good because it takes it from a place where a good would have cost less, would have had a, a smaller use value to, uh, sorry, smaller exchange value to another place that has a higher exchange value and therefore it's a value added. So that's unsurprising. But what was striking to me was the was the kind of factory style condition um, of particular forms of work on board the ship. And so the in- engine room in particular seemed to me uh, to to be the one that is most closer uh, the, that, that that most closely um, conforms to a kind of a Marxian platonic ideal type of uh, proletarian work, physical. Um, requiring skill, uh, being and, and, and a kind of set of workers that, re- that were very 
proud of this. And of course, this is completely not new. Trotsky wrote about this when he wrote about battleship Potemkin, talked about the engineers on board the ship being the real proletarians. And the great and wonderful and amazing and irreplaceable Alan Sekular wrote about this in his wonderful fish story, which is about, all about container ships. And he has a very long discussion of the ways in which um, sailors have often been seen, and particularly the skilled sa sailors on board. So the engineers, for example, are often seen as, in, as, as a kind of a aristocracy, a proletariat aristocracy. And, and he's very subtle in his criticism of this, but he is critical. And so I think that that became clear to me that, in fact, there was that there are differing wage systems that that uh, indeed benefit, for example, the European workers in the engine room, the European officers who work in the engine room and they do have a set of skills that are perhaps very much more easily transposable and transportable outside the business but their work is also um it, it is much more arduous they don't get to see the sea because they're they're bunged up inside the belly of the ship and uh and they and they have to constantly deal with this environment which is physically uh, corporeally, affectively, a very different sort of space than the decks where you have a view of the sea and a sense of a horizon that is very far away. Whereas when you're working in the engine room, it's extremely loud, it's extremely noisy, it's very hot, and it's um, and you're you're essentially in 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 like Jonas in the belly of a metal whale. It is a it's a, it's an amazing place to be. It's. Uh, and, and it is quite hard work. So, so there are all these things that come into play which make it very clear in ways that perhaps hadn't been to me because I had thought of ships perhaps metaphorically or in a, literal, uh, in a literary sense. Mm. When being on the ship and actually seeing how, it ha how work happened, um, that becomes much clearer. Now, there's a woman by the name of Charmaine Chua who has also written a series of uh, blog posts. Around the same time that I was taking my trip, she took a trip from uh, the west coast of the U.S. to Taiwan. And she actually worked on board the ship. And she put on a boiler suit and emptied buckets of oil and cleaned things. And, and her recounting of the physical labor that she did on the work um, is in some ways m much more, I think, uh, exciting than mine because she had a sense of the tedium and the hardness of the work, which were completely and totally experienced by her because she did the work that for me were slightly more abstract or at least observed kinds of qualities. Mm -hmm. Well, and I guess my next question won't really uh, uh, help to go back to the very uh, corporeal uh, um, aspect of it, but still I'm very interested in, uh, and you seem to be fascinated by Melville, so I'd, I'd like to go back to it and re-ask you what, what, what kind of uh, filter did it add to your, to your reading of the situation you, you were in? I grew up avoiding reading Moby Dick. Um, every time I tried it, when I was very young. Um, I just couldn't get through it. I found it really difficult. But then about four or five years ago, maybe three, four years ago, I uh, picked it up again. And this time I read it all the way through and was completely blown away by Moby Dick. I, I thought that it was 
um, it is, in my opinion, the greatest novel written in the last 150 years. There's there's no comparison. There's nothing else that compares to it. It is extraordinary in its richness and its depth and the ways in which it can be read in a literal sense or in an allegorical sense or in a historical sense or in an ethnographic sense. It's an amazing book. And it's also very, very funny. It's one of the funniest novels in, in all sorts of slapstick humour, a kind of cinematic humour and, and a kind of a subtle and ironic humour. Anyway, so I had read this and around the same time that I was developing my interest in this sort of the port project. Um, so when I decided to go back on the ship, I decided to take the book with me just to just to have a sense, just to be reading it. It's an extremely cliche thing. Apparently, everybody else has been taking a container ship has also been taking Moby Dick on board with them. But I'm really glad I did, because talking about the ship as a factory, of course, Moby Dick is one of the first books in which it very explicitly uses that language. The language in, of course, whale ships were not only ships for catching whales, but also for processing the whale already in order for them to be able to transport the material that has been collected from the whale, the whale oil or various other bits of it, um, bones, etc., uh, back to whatever the home city, the home port was. And so there are these wonderful chapters which in Moby Dick in which he talks specifically about these massive fires being built in which the whale fat is rendered in order for it to be liquefied and then, of course, then solidified again into barrels and stored in the ship. And C.L.R. James, the great uh, Caribbean uh, Marxist historian, writer, essayist, uh, revolutionary, also actually thought that Moby Dick's scenes, in the scenes in which this kind of labour happened, were some of the first proletarian literature and some of the most important proletarian literature ever written. And I and I completely agree with them. It's also wonderful. I mean, it's wonderfully descriptive. There is a there is a way in which you realise. Um, I mean, w- what makes Moby Dick so wonderful is that. Melville, having experienced having been a sailor, on the one hand conveys something of the romance of being on the ship, but doesn't shy away from showing what incredible, backbreaking, dangerous labour it is as well. And I think that's what makes the book so wonderful. It was great reading it on board because, as I'm particularly, there were scenes in which he's uh, their ship, the Pequot. Uh, crosses the Indian Ocean and it happened to happen at the same time that I was going through the Indian Ocean and, and I found that serendipity that really quite lovely it was amazing to be reading such a beautiful book about the sea while on the sea so mm-hmm. I don't know if I go on a ship again I may take it along yet again mm-hmm. it was just so wonderful to read it mm-hmm. and since you brought up uh, CLR Gems uh, yes. I think we can also make a connection in how um, uh and you'll see where I'm going with that, but like uh, how the ship is not just a, a sort of facilitator of of that system that it is part of, but it's very much an unmissable uh, uh, piece piece of it. And I mean, uh, when I go back to James and think of those uh, absolutely atrocious de- descriptions of the of the slave ships in the oh. beginning of the the Black Jacobins, yes. uh, something that it's probably the only time that I, I just could not go through the, fir- the, the first time I read it. Um, but so as, as being like the, obviously the slave ship being, being w- without it and without this piece of design, which is always my, my mm-hmm. interest going back to it, there just cannot be any slave trade, right? It's, yeah. it's impossible if you cannot bring 10 million uh, African bodies from, from Africa to, without the ship. to, to America, you, you, you cannot, you can just not uh, make it happen. And similarly uh, to another uh, uh, 
or or rather a more contemporary and uh, um, um, uh, incarnation of of capitalism and uh, and labor and uh, all those uh, geopolitics involved. Uh, the container ship is mm-hmm. very much part of this of this system. It's not just it's not just the easiest way. It's like it's pretty much the only way. Yeah. Uh, um, I mean, we could go back to trains, I suppose. But well, anyway. Uh, so if we if we uh, start your journey, although we you already <laughs> brought us a little bit to the Indian Ocean, but if we if we go back from between Malta and Suez, and arrive at this uh, at this canal, which uh i learned through your own writing is it is incredibly expensive for for ships to to yeah. to cross right it, they have was to it pay some 200,000 200, no i think it's a lot more than that actually it's, okay. it's close to a million for very large container ships wow. well, it was 6 or 700,000 euros mm-hmm. in fees that they have to pay to go through the canal mm-hmm. and through so through this very uh, this man man made uh, and uh, and then nationalized uh, uh, in the in the 1950s by uh, Nasser of um this man-made canal um some something uh something incredibly political happens within within this because it, because of again like the narrowness like there is there is a there is only that's the only way and i think you're describing in uh in the two occurrence when uh, the the canals were closed in uh during the war of uh 56 and 67 um, I think you've wrote that it takes it takes sixteen extra days to actually to actually uh, go go around. go around. So I mean, I, I guess that's that's pretty much doubles the doubles the trip, right? Yeah. So could you tell us a little bit about this tension that's that's uh, that's uh, occurring at this very specific point uh, of of the earth? I mean, uh, these canals are very interesting, uh, and there seems to be a kind of rush of canal making. So, mm. uh, as you know, there, um, the Egyptian regime is now trying to build a parallel canal to Suez in order to facilitate two-way travel, because at the moment the only bit of the canal where two-way travel can happen is the Great Bitter Lake uh, in the middle of the length of the canal between uh, the Mediterranean and the Red Sea. Uh, and there's also, of course, a, a widening of widening and deepening of uh, Panama Canal underway, as well as there's talk of a pa- canal being built in Nicaragua and another canal being built that is going to uh, cut some of the length of the way in Malaysia or in Indonesia, I can't remember which, but there's supposed to be a canal that cuts off about four days of travel time through there. Um, and it... Um, uh, actually will end up circumventing Singapore so Singapore is not too happy about it hmm. so, it's interesting because of course what is interesting about the narrowness of these places is that this narrowness is partially constructed in the sense that if the ships that were going through Suez weren't as big as the ships that I was on or the ships that followed up behind us it was a very large um crude carrier just um, behind us, or very large chemical carrier actually was behind us, and, and they're very large. If these ships weren't as large, then Suez would not be seen as so narrow. Um, and I think that th- there's something quite interesting about this, is that on the one hand, yes, of course, there is a particular physical limit to uh, the number of ships that can c- cross side by side in Suez in the Suez Canal. But there is also 
part of the part of the ways in which this becomes narrow is by the size of the ships that are going through it, and the ships are becoming larger and larger and larger uh, because of the shipping companies thinking that they can save money through economies of scale. Of course, what then becomes an issue with something like that is that the, as the ships get larger and larger and larger, the fixed infrastructure ends up becoming unable to deal with this. So it's not just the canals, for example, that now have to be dredged, deepened in order to facilitate deeper and deeper drafts on the ships uh, and wider and wider ships, uh, but also ports, for example. Port cranes um, in certain kinds of super big ports are now unable to handle the width of some of these very large ships. Uh, so, uh, so, so there's an interesting way in which, on the one hand, the narrowness, the physical narrowness is there. Uh, there's no question that Bob Mandap, for example, uh, close to Aden, is narrower when we look on the map than the Red Sea. But part of it is also that that narrowness is constituted, constructed through a whole series of processes of war making commerce making and regulation making. I was speaking recently to somebody who's an expert on Aden, on the Aden port, who was telling me that for a long time in the 1980s, the waters between these little islands off of Aden and the Yemeni coast, the Yemeni shoreline, were mined. And they didn't know who had mined them. They didn't know which country in the world had actually mined these. And so the entire shipping route had to be shifted around. And in some senses, the shipping route's becoming much narrower precisely because somebody had laid down some unknown country, which they now think might have been Libya, God knows why, uh, had mined uh, these parts of Bob Mandab and had narrowed down the shipping um, the shipping lanes. But again, that's a very con- constructive thing. On the one hand, yes, okay, Bob Mandab is narrow, but on the other hand, it's made much narrower through mm-hmm. human hands. And so this, there is a kind of a politics that goes into this that is about the ways in which, on the one hand, there are economies of scale. On the other hand, there's geopolitical calculations. On the other hand, on the third hand, there's a kind of a route-making processes which pushes people through certain routes. Um, and then there's a, the physical infrastructure. And so that those sets of tensions are, of course, of the most interesting to me because of course it's out of trying to sort out in what what are the power configurations that result in these sorts of tensions that one begins to realize how such infrastructures are constructed, who benefits from them, who pays for them and what is the human cost in terms of both the blood and treasure that goes into the labor in building these places and then the blood and treasure that is spilled in defending them or trying to conquer them that ends up making these places so incredibly significant in human politics and geopolitics. Mm-hmm. And maybe to go back to this idea of dimension, uh, uh, it's interesting to see that this entire uh, uh, infrastructural system can only function if the dimensions are uniformized, right? Yeah. So between 68 and 70, I think, there's, there's been the university formization of the um, of the container itself right yes and which which allowed then to calibrate uh, uh the, i guess the boxes that go inside the container and then the cranes the ships the, the highways the trucks the, the the entire globalized system in which such a transportation of goods can go from one from pretty much any place to, to another right yeah. so there there is a sort of uh, uh uh politics of dimensioning as well and a sort of uh um I mean, it's interesting to see that it's 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 uh, with with new um, 
profit-driven projects that all in a sudden things starts to collapse a little bit because the mm. grain is not big enough. And yes. Yeah, that politics of dimensioning is really interesting. Of course, the original containers were 20-foot uh, equivalent units, 20 TEUs. But of course, m the vast majority of the containers are now 40 TEUs. So they're double the size of what the original containers were. And they're now also 45 and 50, I think, uh, unit t t uh, sorry, 45 or 50 TEU uh, size containers being built that are bigger and bigger and bigger. So so the, on the one hand, you have these processes of standardization that happens that causes uniformity. But on the other hand, there's also this other tension that's to save through having larger and larger and larger containers. And there's going to have to be a breaking point on this. Um, as I mentioned, one of the things that is really striking is that... Um, as the ship's drafts become deeper and deeper and deeper, that becomes a huge question for dredging processes in particular ship channels or in particular ports or in particular harbours. Um, and then the, the physical geography of these places ends up becoming a significant factor because it depends on the, what the actual physical geology of the sea bottom is in some of these places that would allow or facilitate dredging in ways that are cheaper or more um, efficient than it would be in other places. And I think that this is this is also really fascinating, the, the ways in which um, what we can what we think of as nature is being constantly remade, constantly redone. Uh, so that it's not really natural at all, and 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 uh, and there seems to be this constant struggle of reshaping the earth around us to facilitate commerce and war. Uh, you know, uh, the, the the fundamental, I suppose, activities of human society. Mm -hmm. Well, and I guess that's that's what really differentiates um, uh, the two uh, the two next geographical sites uh, with the, the Gulf of Eden and the Strait of Hormuz is that th those are not uh, artificial, mm. in uh, so somehow their um, their narrowness is is incidental and it's only after that that the, the sort of uh, interpretation that is made of them and uh, there's this very interesting aspect in how the 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 laws the laws of the of the sea were changed internationally to to go from uh, what was it three nautical miles of of national water uh, for each country mm. uh, uh, from the coast to twelve and but something that's not been recognized by the U.S. itself because it would it would kind of compromise uh, compromise the sovereign the the their their rights to 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 bring their ships to closer coasts than than other countries would like would like them to uh, but maybe that's that's maybe going a little bit too far too uh, too fast to Hormuz and maybe we should uh, we should stay in uh, in Aden mm. before before that and uh, a particular aspect of your research was about the, the sort of militarization of this zone and um, and that's something we can also put in in parallel with uh, Deborah Cohen's uh, work and and those this sort of uh, uh, routes, uh, invisible routes for for ships that they're all using, if I understood correctly, mm -hmm. and which are which are considered as more or less safe and with like dozens of I, I don't know you'll tell us, but uh, of of military warships from from so many countries, which is really something, I guess, most people including myself, don't really realize before yeah. before he hearing about it. I was quite surprised by the number of different countries that seem mm. to have a stake on the what they would consider to be the security of trade um, going through the Red Sea. 
that was very striking. Whereas I think there are lots of warships in the Persian Gulf and in the, the Strait of Hormuz. Almost all of those warships belong to the littoral countries. But what was very striking about the Red Sea and the Gulf of Aden was the truly international nature of all the ships that were there. Um, India, China, Djibouti, uh, the, the, the European countries, the Dutch, the Italians, um, the uh, aircraft carrier Charles de Gaulle yeah. was in the area at the time. And so it was very striking to me that this particular route seemed, the, the route going from Indian Ocean through the Red Sea, through to Suez, seemed to be um, the most militarized segment of my trip. Even though, of course, we often hear about the Strait of Hormuz being a kind of a security zone. But this Indian Ocean zone area was just astonishing, the number of warships that went through there. And that was partially interesting because this was before the Saudi war on Yemen. Uh, and it is long after Somali pirates have been a problem for that area. The number of uh, piracy attempts has gone down from something like 400 a year to 40 a year. But some, some, some number that is very, very small. So that wasn't an issue at all. And yet these ships were there. And this is where Deborah Collins' uh, argument becomes true, which is that the securitization of these routes is constitutive of the whole process of trade. It's, 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 it's significant to it. It makes those the, the trade possible, but the trade also makes the securitization possible. There is a co-constitutive relationship between war and trade there. And this, of course, also happens through a whole set of processes which completely normalize this. So, for example, as I, as I mentioned in there, and as it appears in the Admiralty charts, there are now zones within the, area, within the uh, Gulf of Aden in particular where the international bodies, international maritime bodies, recommend ships to convoy together in order to prevent the possibility of pirate attacks. And this zone goes right in the middle of the sea. And that convoying actually allows better surveillance by warships because, of course, the warships also travel within this particular channel. Um, our ship didn't travel in this particular route. We actually stayed very close to the Yemeni coast mm. all the way through, all the way up Indian Ocean. And it was, it, was an, it was a very interesting experience because, of course, in that zone, in the area that we were going through, which was away from the channel which all the big ships would go through, there were no other ships. We had gone from the Red Sea, where at any given moment the AIS system, which is an electronic ship tracking system, uh, showing something like 200 ships, to going down alongside the, the, the Yemeni shoreline, where at any given moment the AIS showed maybe two ships. At some, one point there were no ships at all on the AIS screen. Um, and all of them had been in the channel. So there's, there's this very interesting way that the, the, sh the, the seas are populated in this variable way, which corresponds really interestingly and in very covert sorts of way with the geopolitics of the place. Um, again, you don't learn about these things unless you're on the ship, which mm -hmm. is part of the reason why this ship trip was such an ex exciting experience for me is because I was learning things that I never even imagined being a factor. Mm -hmm. And uh, so talking about uh, the sort of density of, of ships at a, at a given uh, place and before before really arriving to Hormuz, although where it's uh, close enough, there is this 
very interesting place to, of of the the, the port of uh, Fujairah uh, in the United uh, Arab Emirates, yeah. uh, which is really not big. It's like hundred hundred thirty thousand uh, 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 people, not even for the city, but the sort mm. of entire region. Yeah. But somehow there's there's this uh, big uh, big port, and also as 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 it happened, also all the uh, maybe not all, but many many connections to submarine internet cables as well arriving right there. Yeah, that's well. So, so do do you know a little bit about the geopolitics of this particular place? Or well, I I'm not entirely sure that I know much about this geopolitics, but I suppose the location is a very useful location mm. because it is um, it's on the Gulf of Oman mm. rather than in the Persian Gulf side. Uh, so it avoids having to go through the Strait of Hormuz. Um, Fujairah is the, in receipt of most of the oil and chemicals com- coming from Abu Dhabi, and so that it, it uh, I think it is the main kind of oil chemical terminal for Abu Dhabi actually for the, for the Emirates of Abu Dhabi, and that partially explains the, the the amount of chemicals and oil that goes out of that port, um, and it is also uh, it, it is um, also a uh, on the um, land side, as you mentioned, it's a very sparsely populated area. So in terms of questions of security, I'm sure it's a much easier place to monitor, surveil and maintain a security uh, umbrella over. And so I think that those all of those things make Fujairah a very desirable oil and chemical uh, place. But what was really striking about that was on the AIS screen was when approaching Fujairah, the entire sea was like one huge, giant, seething uh, mass of tankers either waiting at anchor to come in or staying on there. Because I've, what I've heard, uh, and it's something that I have to research more, is that apparently tankers, if the price of oil is volatile and quite low, tankers sometimes remain at anchor until the price of oil goes up and then they um, heave anchor and they go off to wherever they can sell the oil at good prices. And so there, there, were, there were loads or hundreds of ships at anchor just outside of Fujairah. And I suspect that part of it was ships waiting to come in and because of uh, port congestion. And part of it was ships just simply remaining at anchor until the price of oil became either more stable or went higher. And that was really interesting to me because, of course, you know, again, this is one of those things where you just don't even hear about it. I had never heard of Port of Fujairah until a couple of years ago when I visited Khorfakan. And so I think that that was fascinating to me. It's mm-hmm. absolutely fascinating to me. So uh, a little bit of uh, a little bit north of uh, Fujairah, you you do have Hormuz. We are we are getting yeah. there, uh, and uh, interestingly enough, it's not it's not the UAE there. It's uh, it's Oman that has a little piece of territory yes. at the very tip of the peninsula, and on the other side, uh, Iran, and uh, and so uh, as as we said earlier, as uh, the the territorial. Uh, uh, sovereignty or maritime sovereignty is uh, is of twelve nautical miles, uh, so which creates obviously a twenty four uh, 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 width uh, of of uh, sovereign uh, maritime uh, waters, um, uh, national waters for Oman and and, uh, and Iran, and the strait is only twenty twenty one miles. So you're obliged to go in uh, either one or the other uh, sovereignty, and I'm I'm I'm, I'm guessing here is that it might more be towards Oman than towards Iran in general probably so but it also uh, but also there is there 
what is interesting about that region is that ter- territorial maritime territorial sovereignties are divisible they are overlapping mm-hmm. and they are indeterminate and they as as toby craig jones argues they are uh, constantly fragmented defragmented and reset by confi- new configurations of power into which the u.s always has a hand um now, one of the interesting things about the Strait of Hormuz has been that Iran and Oman have had a more or less friendly relationship for the last several decades. And so this question of a overlapping sovereignty has not mattered unless, of course, the U.S. Uh, or other U.S. allies have had a hand in it. Um, but there are also geological reasons for perhaps wanting to be closer to the Omani coast, and that is that um, the, the Persian Gulf is a remarkably shallow sea. Uh, in in relative terms, uh, and it is very striking the extent to which, as ships get bigger, it becomes more and more difficult to navigate certain parts of the uh, sea. So the channels, for example, that go to Jabal Ali, need to be dredged often, uh, both in order to accommodate in, in the Persian Gulf, both in order to accommodate the draft of the ships, and then also to. Uh, to attenuate the effect of shifting sand bottom currents, shifting sand currents at the bottom of the sea, and so there's there there are those issues also that go into the process, but um but as Toby points out, there's often a politics to this, which mm-hmm. is much more significant than actually the geological or the quote unquote natural kinds of determinants. So the narrowness is produced through a set of geopolitical decision making. Um, the ship that I was on uh, kept at the center of the channel, mostly because it was a very big ship and mm-hmm. had a very deep draft. And so um, I'm not entirely sure how they negotiated uh, which territorial waters they were going in. I don't think I asked any questions about that. But certainly for the entire length of the trip, once we were in the Persian Gulf, you could hear on the ship radio the Iranian Navy demanding recognition, demanding, demanding names and information from the ships that were going through. Uh, you could also hear Abu Dhabi uh, uh, authorities. You could hear the Dubai Jabal Ali port of port control. You could hear lots of different kinds of people demanding to know something about the ship. So there is multiple and overlapping also maritime authorities that feel that they have some sort of a role to play in controlling who passes where and in what direction and to what end. Mm-hmm. So. So, so something that I find particularly illustrative of, uh, of um, how this uh, entire transportation of goods is very much part of the um, uh, is very much perceived as part of the national of each each nation's uh, uh, own economic system mm. is the particular uh, political stance of Japan in the matter in uh, so J- Japan is still has constitutionally uh, uh, an army that can only be uh, an army of defense mm-hmm. but uh, Shinzo Abe the, the prime minister who is probably one of the most uh, war uh, uh, minded uh, prime minister since uh, since the last world war uh, uh, that Japan has had uh, has been has been stating that if if Iran was to was to close um, was to mine Hormuz in in a sort of uh, def- defiance uh, uh, gesture, which uh, as you, as always we don't really know if if it's more uh, words or, or or anything. But that's not so much the problem here. Is that uh, J- Japan would would help to the demining uh, process, and which obviously would be also perceived as a as a very strong military action. Uh, 
and and saying that it constituted a, uh, the the mining of the strait would constitute a sort of attack on Japan, which which is very interesting, knowing that obviously Japan is uh, several several thousand kilometers away, and uh, and how how this little strait uh, of twenty one nautical miles uh, wide. Would 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 constitute such a crucial point for a country as far as Japan uh, mm. would be? Um, I mean, I don't, I don't know. If you... I, th- I suppose part of this is because oil trade is what twelve percent of world trade. Uh, the trade in petroleum is crude petroleum is is twelve percent of world trade, and so I think that that partially explains why everybody feels like they have a stake in the Persian Gulf. But part of this is also the imaginary construction of what the Persian Gulf is, and this kind of a narrowness which is construed in an imaginary mm. rather than in an actual sort of way. Um, there are lots of narrower places. There are lots of much more difficult places to navigate than the Strait of Hormuz but of course this has become now part of a kind of a geopolitical imaginary map which is supposed to be a kind of a um, fire spot or a danger spot Um, that's part of it uh, and of course, a lot of that oil is coming from Dammam, Saudi Arabia, Kuwait, etc. And so it's cons- and Iraq and, of course, mm. refineries and oil fields of Iran itself. And so, so yeah, so it, it, there is oil, for example, coming out of that, through that strait, which is cons- cons- considered to be very important. But part of it is just simply, the again, the geopolitical imaginary. I mean, part of this... Um, Japanese assertion of sovereignty over ships coming through the Strait of Hormuz several thousand miles away from its own borders or its own maritime waters is uh, perhaps more of a performance of both Japanese kind of warrior masculinity, if you will, in a, in a larger international system. And part of it is uh, their assertion of their alliance with the U.S., uh, and part of it is a uh, again a kind of a way of wanting to quote unquote reassure markets. There's an entire language of reassurance of of security of safety of insuring of all of that that happens around oil, um, which is astonishing. And I don't think a huge amount of work has been done on the kind of discursive language that is deployed in order to justify all sorts of military action. Um, but while that language goes on there, what is again striking to me is uh, the discourse around Strait of Hormuz is often far more belligerent than the actual presence, mm. practical presence of warships, for example, in the Gulf of Aden. The, you know, there, there are so many ships in the Gulf of Aden and not nearly as many warships in uh, the Strait of Hormuz or at least none that were so visible. And so I think that that's also interesting, that there's a lot more talk about the Strait of Hormuz, but there's a lot more practical securitization in the in the Indian Ocean, the Gulf of Aden and the Red Sea. So um, this, this kind of a fragmentation of sovereignty and assertion of sovereignty over spaces that are thousands of miles away from you, of course, is one characteristic of, of imperial um, type of... Imperial types of sovereignty, but it's also something that the U.S. did when, during the tanker wars, again Toby Jones write about, writes about this, when during the tanker wars of the 1980s, it flagged certain ships as its own and then claimed that any attacks on U.S. flagged ships would be considered an attack on U.S. sovereign territories. It's an interesting way of redefining flagging as 
I mean, flagging has always, ever since its establishment as part of the um, international maritime sets of regulatory practices, has always had an element of territorial sovereignty to it. But in the ways in which it becomes part of a sort of a belligerent landscape of U.S. military presence in the Persian Gulf in the 1980s, it's probably quite significant and probably quite a good model for Shinzo Abe. Mm-hmm. And so all the way, uh, I know this drives dri- that make us drift uh, quite uh, further away than uh, your actual trip uh, mm. um, that ended in in Dubai. But uh, something something that we don't necessarily always have in mind uh, when you when we don't know the region so much is that uh, Iraq is actually like something like I don't know maybe twenty or thirty kilometers of of coastal line mm-hmm. on on the on the Persian Gulf, but yeah. at, at the very very end of of the country. And uh, and so with obviously the the, the current uh, Iraqi situation with a, with still a, a pretty big uh, American control on it, we we can also see uh, again going back to to uh, Deborah Cohen's uh, books, mm-hmm. the daily life of of logistics. This this particular city, right, that used to be a, a U.S. military mm-hmm. uh, basis, where uh, and that's where we go back to your to your own uh, former books mm-hmm. that were used as a prison uh, uh, for for uh, uh, in the so-called war on terror by the U.S. That is now has been private privatized and uh, that's described uh, in a few pages by by Deborah uh, uh, as a, a container city for the is it, I think that's what you call transshipment right like like mm-hmm. the, but a sort of securitized private uh, uh, yeah uh, industrial logistics yeah. city. Can you tell us a bit about yeah. that? Um, yeah, Deborah Cowan writes about this very beautifully, and there's a lot to talk about this. So Camp Bakr was one of three major um, detention centers in Iraq, Camp Bakr, Camp Nama, and, and then Abu Ghraib. And these, um, the Camp Bakr detention center, incidentally, was also where Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, the caliph of ISIS, was detained. Mm-hmm. So that's also an interesting connection. Um, but when the U.S. was uh, withdrawing from, uh, withdrawing the, primary number of its forces because of course it has large numbers of advisors and contractors and the the like in the country. When it was withdrawing the main kind of military divisions out of the country, one of the things that it decided to do was to help to advise in the transformation of Camp Bakka into Basra Logistics City. It's called Basra Logistics City, but it's actually in the city of Umm Qasr, which is a little bit further away from Basra. And this um, area is sitting, as you say, on on the very tiny bit of coastline that Iraq has on uh, the Persian Gulf. And, uh, and, and and it's privatized and their contractors and many of the people who actually have businesses in there are have crony ties to the regime in, in Baghdad. So you've gone from a detention center and a counterinsurgency um, a kind of uh, hub to a logistics hub. Again, this traffic between civilian and military functions, which can be easily then reshifted to the military function again, should they need to be. Um, it's, of course, characteristic of many different kinds of ports and places, but, uh, but that language of reusing bases, military bases, um, as logistics areas, because a lot of the infrastructure is already there, the warehouses are already there, the, the sort of the paved roads within the space of these logistics cities are already there. That's all quite significant. What is interesting, perhaps an afterthought to add to this, is that 
um, with Omarassar being supposedly sort of this now this big logistics area for Iraq, uh, the Kuwaitis are building a very very large container port on the island of Bubian, which sits yeah. right across from Omarassar. And should they build this very large container port, supposed to come online in the next couple of years, um, it will definitely affect both the ability of the ships to go to Omarassar in terms of the traffic, uh, but also it will probably take business away from Omarassar. So, so there's a, there, there, there are old geopolitical rivalries that are also playing out in, in this. The island of Bubian, where the Kuwaiti port is scheduled to go, was of course a major uh, point of contention between Iraq and Kuwait, and one of the excuses that Saddam Hussein cited in 1990 when invading Kuwait, and so that's that. There's there's a way in which we 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 have a constant switching between civilian logistics, transport, and military war basing, and this goes back and forth in these areas. And there is a way that that political economy of war feeds right into the. Um, the, the, the commerce and logistics and vice versa and that's perhaps most clear in this area precisely for those reasons that Deborah Count so beautifully shows and all the ways in which the politics of that is developing mm-hmm. now Well I think it concludes uh, beautifully uh, this conversation and uh, again uh, both uh, methodically and geographically which uh, which I Thank find you. particularly interesting we can we can have a map to uh, accompany this, this conversation Thank you so much Ale. My pleasure, thank you very much